What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back. Welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase relatable role models and their journey in work and life, including their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and much, much more to help you achieve your potential, become your best self, and continue to be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vidya Tagawal, and let's get started. Today, in this episode 103, I'm speaking with Jeanette Chia. Learn about her global upbringing, born in Hawaii and then Japan, before settling down in Melbourne, with parents being of Chinese and Malaysian heritage. In this wide-ranging conversation, we get very candid and cover how seeing her parents with mum an accountant and dad an economist made education the cornerstone of her early years, spending time in the banking sector and then realising she didn't want to play by those rules, and how her then-manager supported her with three-month sabbatical to explore business ideas. Jeanette shares how Hex started as trade missions to San Francisco with a group of students from Australia, and how they're three days away from travelling to Austin, Texas, on a big program when the border shut down as COVID hit in 2020 and to make things worse, Hex had a month's worth of cash in the bank. I also asked her about raising money from investors, funding challenges of female founders, current economic climate and lots more. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Jeanette Chia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. I'm excited to have you on. Let's start with some fun facts to set the scene. Where were you born and where do you live now? I was born in Honolulu in Hawaii, actually. My uh, my parents were studying and working there after they got married in Malaysia. Uh, and now I am dialing in from Brunswick, Melbourne in Wurundjeri land. And what was your first job and what do you do now? My first job, well, I could probably answer this in two ways. One was when I was probably 12 and delivering newspapers and uh, junk mail, basically, around the neighbourhood with my mum. <laughs> so walking around with mum and then sort of like putting flies into the mailboxes. So if you lived in the Glen Waverley area, I'm really sorry. Um, <laughs> but the actual first paid job that I did by myself was at Hungry Jack's mm. uh, in Forest Hill in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, um, I did the front counter, I did drive through I did children's birthday parties, and I remember distinctly being 14 and they made us wear maroon lipstick to match the bow tie of, um, of the Hungry Jack's brand. So uh, <laughs> that was then. Uh, now I am the CEO and uh, co-founder of Hex, which is an education technology company um, based in Australia, but serving students and educators around the world. Mm. So so funny talking and hearing about Glen Waverley. I grew up in Wintona South in, in Melbourne, so I spent a lot of time in Glen Waverley. So maybe I would have seen you at Hungry Jacks when you were, <laughs> when you were working there, possibly. I, I want to zoom out and, and sort of talk about, before we get to Sunrise, actually, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer. I wonder, is there a high flyer in your life who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? Oh, that's a great question. I think there's 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 lots of them, honestly. There are so many people who work really hard to make a difference in the lives of uh, you know people around them, also their own um, families or their communities, and oftentimes fly completely under the radar. So, I mean, I think you can be a high flyer and still have your um, you know cloaking device on, <laughs> and people might not clock you as you fly across. You know, there's 
there's a, a woman in my team, um, Shirley, who works not only full-time with me at Hex doing an incredible job, but also she uh, volunteers her time at a company called Medical Pantry and just, you know, helps to make sure that unused medical devices get uh, deployed around the world to places that need them. And I just think someone like that who can dig deep into, you know, their values, but also do great work, um, that's a high flyer to me. That's amazing. That is incredible to do two jobs and then do two two very different things. So very cool. Mm. I want to zoom out, Jeanette, and talk about your sunrise. You mentioned Hawaii, and I know when we spoke leading up to this, your parents are from Asia as well. So a lot of mixed culture there. What was that like mm-hmm. growing up in that mixed cultural household? Yeah, it, it's it's funny. Like we, um, I wouldn't say mixed culture in the actual house because mum and dad are both Chinese Malaysian, but the global upbringing and journey was definitely pretty um, pretty mixed. So mum um, and dad got married. They, they moved over to the States and uh, studied and worked there for about seven years. I then came to Australia when I was a toddler and then uh, went to kindergarten in Japan um, before, you know, coming back to Melbourne. And just it was, I, I guess there's no better way to train someone in how to be resilient and how to have to make friends every year or every couple of years. Um, it definitely got me used to walking into a walking into a room and not knowing anybody and not necessarily understanding what the cultural context was. So I had to pretty quickly learn to read those rooms. Um, but I honestly am really quite proud of you know having that that blend. It's yeah, I think it sets you up with a, a different perspective of who you are, how big the world is, how small you are, but also how much potential there is to to change things. Mm. And it's, and it's really cool. I think Hawaii is a particularly interesting place. Like I'm a big fan of um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and, and Barack Obama, and they both have strong Hawaiian connections. So there's some good role models there for <laughs> in terms of Hawaii. Yeah, you know, like I think the, the locals were, I was there recently and, um, you know, they were very proud to point out, okay, this is where Obama went to school. And actually uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, um, turned up on the island on the same the same uh, time we were at Kauai and I had this moment of like, maybe I should just drive around and see if we can just like bump into celebrities and people like that. But, you know, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a melting pot. And um, I, I know for a fact that my mum definitely felt the difference from, you know, living in, in Hawaii where it was a high Asian culture, um, lots of migrants that had melting pot going on for decades and decades. Um, and then moving to Brisbane, in the early 80s, that was a bit of a culture shock um, and very different in the way that uh, I think she found the Asian community uh, in, in Brisbane at that time. So, you know, there was, I've heard from my parents, like the differences in what they experienced. But um, yeah, I guess growing up in Australia as an Asian Australian and kind of figuring out your place, that, that's a whole different ball game. And it probably must be normal for you growing up in that because you just wouldn't know anything different I assume and and what did your parents do for work you mentioned you were moving around a lot so I assume did their jobs take them around the world yeah actually uh, mum uh, was mum did her MBA and she was an accountant or is an accountant um, one of those lifelong learner types who was still doing her CPA studies in her 60s oh, wow. um, my dad actually is an economist so he um, he did his PhD in economics uh, and it was his job that initially took us to Australia. So he was offered a, a role at the University of Queensland, uh, and then we moved from moved the family from Honolulu to, to Brisbane. So I, I sort of look at that. It's funny. I was thinking about it the other day. This sliding doors moment of how many different 
futures you could have had. Like if dad had taken the job in Singapore, what, what would my life have been? Or if it stayed in, in the States, who could I have become? And, you know, those kinds of interesting things. We don't, we almost don't think about the, yeah, what could have happened necessarily. Um, it, it sounds like education was a big part of your parents' DNA. They both sound very educated mm-hmm. and they both had successful careers. And now you're in the education space which we'll get to in a second but was that something that was a focus growing up for for yourself in terms of high school and education again you mentioned Asian like I'm Indian heritage and and education Mm -hmm. in that part of the world is so important like that's I think the bigger biggest focus a parent can have what was that like for you seeing your parents being so successful and so well educated I mean education was 100% like your only job as a kid (laughs) get educated I mean you know they did they did they ticked all the boxes right they basically um you know they they got me learning the violin from a really early age I was doing all the I did the Chinese schools of which nothing sticks so stuck so I can't speak any Chinese which is a real shame um I you know I did tutoring I did the the mum made me do practice exams for like the scholarships on Saturday mornings like it was just it was a lot (laughs) and I think um it was definitely instilled that the expectation was to go to higher education and do the absolute best you could. Um, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes around Asian families and parents and the tiger bums and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, while I felt pressure, I always felt supported. Um, but, yeah, no, there, there's definitely a level of cultural expectation, I think, particularly when your parents have and many, many Australians will, you know, and people around the world will feel this, like especially when their parents have moved and been migra- migrants in order to give their kids a better life. Like that sort of journey I don't think ever changes. The pressure that kids feel to, to live up to that um, is universal, I think. We, we had Rachel Yang on the show re- recently from Giant Leap, who, who I know you, you both know each other through the investment they made in Hex. And one of the things she spoke about mm-hmm. was similar to that because she had um, strong Asian influences, but because she wanted to integrate into an Australian culture, she kind of went away from her Asian influences. And I can resonate with that too, like being of Indian heritage and we moved when I was 10 years old and I tried really hard to not speak the language at home and be very English focused. And and I can still speak the language, but I kind of regret that now in hindsight going, why did I make such an effort to Mm -hmm. be someone different? Is that something that resonates with you? Because I feel like there'd be listeners listening to this who might be of Asian heritage or different cultures and they kind of feel a bit lost. Did you have any learning from that in your younger days? It's funny you ask this question. It's um, something that came really to the front of my mind last year when this uh, Asian-Australian influence list came out and I was like, Mm. oh, okay, I'm being recognised as an Asian-Australian, like inverted commas, right? Um, And... I definitely, I definitely identify with that piece of, you know, wanting to do self-erasure and wanting to really fit in and the number of times I wished I was taller and blonder and the number of times I, I wished that, um, you know, I didn't, yeah, like I didn't have that sort of cultural baggage, I guess, but now I look at it as richness and, and excitement. So I just, I mean, I think every, every young person growing up will find some thing of their upbringing that they might feel uncomfortable with or they might want to shed, um, but Definitely, I've got a lot of examples of really specific things <laughs> growing up where I was trying to assimilate and I either got told to get back in my box or I was, um, or I would deliberately shun making friends with the nice Asian girls at school because I didn't want to be just lumped in that group. 
um, and sit in the front of the class with an appropriate length skirt. Like I wanted to be with the the girls who knew all the bands and all the boys and like, you know, like I used to pretend that I watched Home and Away and like, because I didn't, I wasn't allowed to. And I used to get, come to school and be like, yeah, oh yeah, that was really bad when Dylan did that. And like, I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> I feel like all of us have been through it, right? It's kind of like, if you, yeah. if you don't admit it, something, something's off. So yeah. Uh, and if you fast forward to when you were 18 and, and you've got some understanding of yourself and some understanding of the world, what, what was success at that age? Like what would have fulfilled you in life? I sat in the camp where I felt like it was a bit predetermined that I was going to do something like one of one of the top few degrees, right? I'm like, it's mm. predetermined. I'm going to do one of those. It's going to be business or law or something like that. Um, but also I do have this super clear memory of being in my, you know, 14 or 15, having to choose year nine electives and which were then going to determine what you would, you know, be eligible for in year 12 mm. and then, that would be your prerequisite for your degrees. And I remember sitting there trying to decide on, do I want to do media studies or sociology or economics or and or like maths methods or whatever it was, and just being so, so stressed out because I thought if I made the wrong choice at that moment, my entire life was going to go off kilter. Like I kind of thought there was one, one set of actions that you can take to maximise how successful you could be and if you made the wrong step at any point you were going to completely throw that off um and that fear you know that fear was real I I clearly I clearly remember that moment um so I think I just you know threw down the things that again that you think are going to maximize your your success um were they the things that made me the happiest I'm not sure were they the things that I loved the most again not quite sure um you know I I did I ended up going into a an economics and an arts degree um at Monash, which was great and it was fine and, you know, learning was, was awesome and I majored in sociology and I really enjoyed that stuff because that was all about nature, nurture and media and crime and, you know, gender and all that kind of thing. Um, but I just, I don't know, I just had this vision that I had to, I had to emerge from university in a suit. <laughs> um, mm. I had to emerge and like go into a corporate job and I had this vision that I was going to be corporate Barbie, like in my stiletto strutting down Collins Street. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I made that happen for a few years and that was it was fun, but like it wasn't eventually what I decided to stick with. I was going to say, I think you worked at ANZ Bank, which I assume fit that description of wearing a suit <laughs> and having a, having a cubicle in the office and a fancy office on Collins Street or on the oh, yeah. city streets. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, lots of Collins Street addresses. I, I worked at a bunch of financial services companies. Um, funnily enough, I think I actually, my very first like professional job I was a receptionist um, at a small financial planning firm mm. and they met me while I was a waitress. They actually recruited me um, for my waitressing job to say, do you want to come and be a receptionist? And I was like, that sounds amazing. You mean I don't have to like wash, wash cups? Um, <laughs> and that small firm was actually acquired by a large financial services firm um, on Collins Street. And when I think back to what was going on, like I was 19, I didn't understand the significance for that small business to actually be acquired and to merge in and for the leader of the small business to almost like reverse takeover into a certain department. Um, and I kind of look back on that and I'm like, wow, I was actually like part of almost like a startup acquisition right at the very start of my career. Didn't realize what was going on. I just was like helping to make the newsletters. <laughs> um, so yeah, but no, I definitely, I definitely went down the corporate Barbie route for a little while and uh, you know, had fun. 
There were conferences. It was before the Royal Commissions. <laughs> it, it was actually a point that um, Emma Forster, who, who I spoke to leading up to this, is, and and she she shared a lot about your General Assembly times, which we'll which we'll get to in a second. And she spoke about how fantastic you were and how that perhaps inspired you to to work more with students and work in education. But one of the questions that I was curious about before that is is what were the sort of culminating factors that made you a corporate SKP? Because Often in, mm. in my experience, speaking to friends, when they leave corporate, they leave as a victim and they complain and they go, the world doesn't help me and, and I don't know what I want to do with my life. But you kind of, just given your personality and everyone talks about this energizer bunny personality you've got and, and sort of you just get on with it. What would take us inside that time frame when you were thinking of leaving corporate? What was mm. kind of, what were the things in your mind and, and how were you prioritizing what to do? Yeah, it was a really interesting season. I think um, I'd been, I'd been at my last corporate job was at ANZ in the innovation team, and I'd been through a bunch of different projects. Um, some were amazing, and some were less amazing. <laughs> um, but you know, that's that's life. That's work. What happened was I ended up in a role which was basically a product owner role. Um, I had never really worked in a tech team before. I'd never worked in product before. Um, and all of a sudden I'm having a team of uh, engineers and QA and designers and they're looking to me for for answers. And I suddenly realized that all of the training I'd done through marketing and, and you know, all of those kinds of other work, you're quite well set up to move into tech. Um, even though, I, you know, clearly I'm not a, I don't have a tech background. So I ended up going to General Assembly to learn some UX design because I thought that that was the easiest transition from marketing to technology to understand just enough of the language so I could communicate with my colleagues and do a good job. Um, and when I was there, I probably ran it. That's where I started to run into heaps of people who were creative and technical and entrepreneurial. But what I actually found was they didn't necessarily have the rigor or the commerciality to make the things that they wanted to make actually happen. Um, and I'm a person who's very much about, let's take that idea and make it real. Let's take this thing from A to B. Let's take the one step to make it real. Um, every my, my whole life I've been that person to say, okay, that's a cool idea. Like what's the first thing we need to do? Um, and so I think immersing myself into that world of people, I just started having heaps of coffees. I basically said yes to lots of things. I started to help organize events for female entrepreneurs. I just kind of, I don't know, I dabbled, I experimented and that became like my hobby. So I worked full time um, and then just like went to meetups after work or went to events after work or tried to organize things. Um, my partner and I started a fundraising event called the Gingerbread Demolition, which was all about just smashing giant gingerbread houses for charity. Um, and even just starting that event from scratch and building a brand and finding partners and stuff like that all kind of like, I don't know, bubbled up in this piece of, I want to create something. Um, this is a long answer. I'm, I'm aware of that, <laughs> but essentially, you know, in that time, I just, yeah, I, I, I basically, um, when I was thinking of, I wasn't really thinking of leaving until I started to see how many more opportunities there were outside. Um, and I think I started to feel like the corporate world is great, um, but there are rules and there are systems. And if you can play by those rules and um, influence the right people, you can probably be super successful. Uh, and I kind of got to a point where I was like, I think I know the rules and I don't think I want to play. Um, so I thought I'd just go and make some new rules somewhere else. I feel like the takeaway 
there is those experiences were really good building blocks to take you into what you're doing now. And, and maybe that's some inspiration for the audiences. It's not always the part to go from university into a, be a startup founder and build the next billion dollar business. Often mm. having these building blocks is actually critical. And I'm sure you share this now with up and coming founders when they sort of mm-hmm. seek your counsel. I want, I want to touch on general assembly because one of the things Emma mentioned to me was that your NPS survey results at the end of the class were always one of the highest and kids oh, would nice. and students would love coming back again and again. And you created a really good impression for the institution. And, and Emma said you made her look good as well. So, which is, which is always a nice bonus, but tell us about that. Cause you mentioned you came from ANZ, very structured into this sort of creative space and helping others. What, what do you think in hindsight you did that helped you get those high NPS results and, and were there any learnings there that you've taken into HEX? Yeah. Um, something, I mean, there's probably two things that come to mind on that point. One is that I actually have like a, um, a musical, like I've done musical theatre back in the day. So, like you know, oh, yes, I played violin. I also did singing and I kind of, um, I was in a bunch of high school musicals. And there's something about just the performance mindset, I think, that if you are an if you like performing, like debate club, you know, that kind of stuff, being in front of a group of people probably feels like a happy place. Um, so maybe there was a natural, a natural thing there that kind of supported those high scores. Um, but the other thing that I think is actually more about me and the way I approach the world is I want everyone I meet to feel seen. You know, I want everyone I meet to feel like I, I've taken a moment or at least a beat to kind of get who they are understand that they're coming from a particular unique perspective. Um, and so I think maybe in, in classes or in groups, even if it's a big auditorium or a small class, like I do try to, yeah, like I, I very, I try to make sure I'm in their heads rather than in my own head. Um, so taking that extra time to just try to understand what the audience needs. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, the very first, the very first initiative I made while I was still at the bank was actually a career coaching like business. Like I made my little website and I was helping people update their LinkedIn profiles and their CVs and stuff. And it was all very much about helping someone feel like someone understood them and mm. could translate that to, uh, yeah, to a communication piece. And and was that time at General Assembly the first sort of seed that? you felt you could build a business in education? Because again, that's something that when I speak to people, a lot of people relate to exactly what he said about helping others and improving the education system. But it's very rare for someone to go from idea into building a business and building a, a really successful business that has, that has grown over, over the years. What was, again, back to your thought process, because I think that's something that's really interesting to me is were there any kind of data points or was it just, self-belief that you felt okay let's just go off and try and build something here and see where it can take me um mm, good question (laughs) so I think I think you know doing like starting really small organizing like one event and like people came to the event like I was like oh I did a thing like I made it um making Mm. a website for a friend you're like oh I made a website like just you know on Squarespace or something Mm. um I really credit all of the coffees that people were generous to have with me, like the, the woman who told me how to write an invoice, the woman who showed me how, you know, her how her Squarespace was set up. Like there's all these little micro things. So I think show, people take lifting the lid on what seems difficult and like showing you that it's actually not that hard was crucial. Um, 
I have to definitely, you know, be really honest here and say during that time I was kind of shopping around a bunch of different ideas. Like because I was meeting lots of people, there were other businesses that were kind of around that were like, oh, do you want to come and help me build this or do you want to help me build this? And so I almost joined, you know, like a hospitality kind of app um, startup and I almost joined, you know, a travel app startup. Like there was a few other things that I was just really more interested in the person and how I could help them. Um, and it wasn't until I actually met um, Bevis, who is the the co-founder of Hex and lives in San Francisco. Um, you know, we we had a we started a friendship. We started kind of peer supporting each other, um, and he actually invited me to to join him. And he said, you know, there's I've got this idea. It's more about trade missions and bringing Australian founders to Silicon Valley. And um, do you want to do that? And I was like, that sounds fun. So again, it was more about me being interested in the person, the mission. Um, and did I know that was going to become what it is today? Like, absolutely not. Like, I didn't join that mission thinking that we were going to build an ed tech company. Um, and, you know, and since then, uh, we've, we've gone our separate ways in terms of, in terms of co-founders and he's building, building something else in, in the States. And, um, you know, that journey was, that journey was tricky as well. Like kind of figuring out, hey, we started this thing. It's looking like this, but it could look like that. Um, and I think that was one of those moments where I don't know if you've heard the analogy that if you're co-founders, you've got to be riding one horse and the horse can't go into two different sunsets. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, we had to make that difficult decision um, a few, a couple of years ago. So, yeah. So, I mean, like it was a, it wasn't a, wasn't an aha moment. It wasn't like a, oh, I'm, I'm so smart. I can build something. It was an, a complete evolution. It was testing, testing. It was like, hey, this event worked, maybe we'll do another one. Hey, this trip worked, maybe we'll do another one. Like just building blocks on top of blocks. I'm really glad you share that raw insight because I think that's one misconception that people see from movies is that you have this bright idea and you build a billion dollar business and, and things just go up and up <laughs> and up. So thank you for giving that kind of raw insight. And and maybe we'll get to the co-founder one and, and learnings there in a second because that is something, again, not spoken about enough. But you, you mentioned about running the initial sort of exchange programs and I think it was called Hacker Exchange and taking mm-hmm. students to San Francisco and exposing them to the tech scene. And I think this was in 2015, 16. I'd be curious about that because that, again, is quite unique. Like you don't see it as much today in a post-COVID world because there's so much uncertainty mm-hmm. and I mean, travel is slowly picking back up. But do you think that gave you a really good personal, back to personal learnings, seeing other aspects of the world? Like we spoke in your childhood about Hawaii and the Asian mm-hmm. influence, but then you're now in San Francisco, but you're not there as just an individual. You're taking other students and you're kind of on the learning journey too. Do you think that helped with those building blocks you mentioned in terms of setting yourself up as well for better yep. awareness? Oh, a hundred percent. Like I think the first trip we ran to Silicon Valley, it was uh, February, 2017. There was seven students and one on one sort of EIR um, or expert in residence. Um, that was Cheryl Tai of Cupcake Central, uh, Cupcake uh, Central fame. Um, mm. And we, we went over to uh, Silicon Valley and, you know, Bevis, who was living there, had set up a bunch of meetings. Um, I don't know how he did this, but he hustled us into the same room as Guy Kawasaki. Uh, you know, I'd, support, I'd help to get things like organized with RMIT and they'd signed off on credit. And all of a sudden we're like, oh, people are getting on planes do a thing that we said exists and it, it only exists today because we're just making it happen today. Um, 
But during that program, I was learning just as much as the students. Um, I tried to make it my job to, again, ensure that all of them were getting something out of every session. Uh, so I was kind of playing on two speeds, I think. Like one is like me learning as a person and the other one was like facilitating. Um, but over the next probably couple of years, like we went on, met, you know, we returned to Silicon Valley, I want to say maybe half a dozen times. We did a first a program to Tel Aviv in Israel, which is known as like, you know, the innovation nation, the startup nation. Um, I started to understand what's going on here in Melbourne a bit better. So I think just starting to get that global perspective was super important. Um, I went to Austin, to South by Southwest. So just actually, yeah, physically being surrounded by people, thinking, living, breathing, talking about um, different things. I, like I think I gave myself... Like I probably did like an MBA by myself. I just like, you know, start, like a startup entrepreneurship master's just like doing all that. And at this point, were you full-time into the business? Uh, I didn't go full-time into the business for about, oh, six to eight months after we did mm. our first program. So I actually, and I've, I think I've, I'm sure some people who might know this story, but I, I told my boss at the time that, I had this opportunity and I needed to take some time off. So I asked if I could take all of my annual leave, all of my lifestyle leave, all of my unpaid leave that was allowed. And I um, took three months off the three months off ANZ and kind of basically just like run amok. (laughs) I went to every event. I did all the things. I had a million coffees um, and then uh, came back to, to the bank and he was like, are you coming back or not? I was like, well, yes, but can I come back part-time? Um, and I just will be forever grateful for that um, that manager who was like, you know what, I understand what you're trying to do and I still see you have value here in this team, um, but I also understand that you're kind of looking for a soft landing. Um, and I, it's very generous that he did that. And I don't, you know, I don't know how many leaders are honestly that generous to put their team members in front of them, um, in front of the needs of, of them as a manager so um, I'm always inspired by what he did for me and after we got had a bit more traction with the business and I also was dabbling in some consulting on the side I you know felt like I had enough enough money like that I could safely step away um, and that's tough because like the, the higher you go in business and the more you have like a mortgage or rent mm. and children and obligations it's it's tricky um, and I think what happened for me from a financial perspective is my mentality changed from corporate being what's the highest salary I can get with my next role to, okay, what is the least amount of money I need to be okay for the next, like mm. the next few months? And what's the absolute worst case scenario if I need to come back and get like a junior marketing job somewhere, I can do that. So that's a, that was a really big mindset shift, especially for someone like me who was trained to think about how successful can you be? How much money can you mm. make? How much? Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you glad you share that manager point because I think that's something that some founders that I speak to struggle with, particularly as they go to raise investor mm-hmm. funding where the investor goes, are you full-time? And exactly to your point, there's a lot of lifestyle aspects there where maybe you can't be full-time, but that doesn't mean you don't yeah. believe in your opportunity. It's just that you need the financial sort of cushioning to go, okay, I can go full-time and I yep. can have a softer landing. And maybe that's something we can touch on as part of your VC interactions and you've, and you've obviously raised a significant amount of money there and, and some of the learnings around those interactions. I also want to touch on when you went in full-time and, and you started scaling it, we, we spoke about this in the pre-call around working in the education system, you can 
come in with this energy and the system can just consume you. It can just, <laughs> it can say to you, great, we love your ideas, but let's just keep staying in conversation for six, eight, 12 months. And I know I've gone through it myself with my business curiosity center and you have some really good discussions, you do some events. And then the second you say, I say, okay, let's do a paid partnership or something. The conversation just flips and then people <laughs> change and there's a lot of turnover. And, and recently, obviously with COVID universities have been in a bit of a limbo it's a big question and it's a loaded question, but tell me about that in the early days. Like, how did you cut through that with universities? Or maybe you didn't start with universities. Maybe it was with like some general assembly or with with other mm-hmm. institutions. But were there one or two things you felt you did in hindsight that gave you that advantage that helped you cut through? Um, I mean that what you just described is you know (laughs) I I feel it Uh, and I'm sure many founders who have been through any kind of enterprise or b2b sales cycle will will feel that sort of like sting of like oh yeah it was a great initial conversation and then like nothing ever happens um so I mean to get our very first university partner on which was RMIT I am going to ballpark that we had 30 we met 30 people in the business in the university until we found the right person who was you know, just like <laughs> his level was kind of like just senior enough to make decisions, but just junior enough to fly under the radar. So he was mm. like, yeah, we can do this. And like, he kind of pulled the right strings to get the program approved. And, um, and I think once we had, um, I'm giving away my secrets now, but once we had one, you know, one university on board, it's easier to bring the others on board. Cause you've got that precedent. Um, you can kind of point to, uh, someone else's credit um, and say this has already been approved um, but you can't just like rest on your laurels right you have to deliver the value and deliver the outcomes that you promised I think the one really smart thing that we did early on um, was actually bring on two employees like employee number one and two um, from the university sector mm. so people that were actually like had been working in the spec in the space for ten plus years, um, yeah. They were like our first two hires, and even though that seemed a bit odd for um, like a startupy kind of business that was trying to do trade missions and things like that, it made a lot of sense because, like any industry, there's jargon, there's ways of working, there's um, lots of strings and things that people pull that you just won't understand if you've not been immersed in it. Uh, so I would highly recommend to people who are trying to get started in that industry to either get a great advisor from inside the sector or maybe even, um, you know, someone who can dabble, you know, side hustle for you who works in the sector. Because there's a lot of disgruntled, I mean, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say this. <laughs> there, might be, there might be a few disgruntled um, education sector staff at the moment because it's been a rough ride um, mm. and they might be looking for things that are more inspiring and, um, you know, a bit more flexible. It's a great point about finding that sort of third door and not just, having meetings and just waiting and going, oh, this isn't working out, but finding a, a way. And then I'd be curious, what 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 helped you? And again, this is sort of educating the the audience and I'm personally curious as well. Mm-hmm. What was that journey after that, after you got RMIT on board, you had those perhaps your part-time staff or, or maybe even volunteer mm-hmm. staff. How did you sort of navigate? Because I think at some point you stopped those overseas missions and you focused more on ed tech as your sort of, so key product mm. again was there a kind of unique insight there that helped you make that clarity and that transition into this is what we want to focus on and go all in or was that something that kept kept sort of evolving with time yeah I mean I think um 
I'm I'm a really big proponent of like have a general direction in mind, but the exact way to get there is going to change on a regular, like on a constant basis. You know, um, being able to flex and adapt to what what the world throws at you and what the economy throws at you, and you know, there was like this global pandemic or something like it was like really <laughs> frustrating. <laughs> um, so I mean, we'd already started dabbling a little bit in online delivery, um, but I mean, there was a day where we were three, three days away from flying to Austin, Texas on a mission with Global Victoria. We'd organised everything. It was going to be an incredible uh, event. Um, we're, we're always going to be sad that we never got to run the Aussie hangover party, which was going to be at an ice cream bar that had puppies and bamboo pyjamas and Aussie like lo-fi music. Anyway, that's just on the side. Hmm. But three days out from flying, border shut down. I looked at the um, calendar and I looked at the balance of our bank balance. And I was like, we have one month runway. If we don't, if we are not able to sell um, international programs, if we're not able to sell the live hackathons and all the things that we'd already had in in train, if they all got cancelled, which they did, we had one month runway and I was like, shit. (laughs) Um, So that was definitely war room crisis mode, like many businesses around the world. Uh, But I think what we did well in that time was, um, you know, we kind of made a decision. We're like, okay, we're gonna lean. We're gonna lean into digital delivery. We're going to translate our signature style, our fun style, our high energy, as you said, the energizer bunny kind of vibes. <laughs> like, bring that online. Um, try to make all the students still feel seen, even though they're through a screen. So exactly all the same stuff that I kind of have had through my whole career. Like, how can we bring that into um, a digital delivery? And then we just got really kind of um, ballsy about the way we promoted it. So we immediately went out to our uni partners and were like, you guys are struggling. We got this. Don't worry. We got this. We've already built it. It's fine. Um, and we started to realize that we were serving a different need. Um, we were serving the need of people looking for retention, for engagement. Um, and then we were blending in the learning outcomes that we were known for. So it was, that was an evolution. We probably tried 14 different types of programs or propositions. I did a bunch of things like open up my LinkedIn calendar and just like I put on LinkedIn, I said, I've got this many small group mentoring spots, like just book them. And they like sold out within, you know, like half an hour. And that just kind of those little tests just proved what people were looking for Um, until eventually we kind of, yeah, we landed on, um, we landed on this concept of the innovation gap year. We landed on this idea that really is based in the fact that everyone thinks that there's one way to be successful. Um, but we wanted to create a safe place for them to explore and learn about tech and innovation and try on a tech career to see if it fits before they commit to anything else. Because I think a lot of what this generation and and people in general are worried about is that sunk cost fallacy, that FOMO, they're worried about making the wrong choice. So we thought, how can we make it safe to play and safe to learn um, without falling behind, um, without sort of feeling like you're trapped into a, $40,000 $40,000 for your degree. Um, and, you know, just taking all of the good stuff that we've learned over the last few years and, and bringing it to, to the fore in hex ed. So that's where we ended up. So ev- short answer, evolution. <laughs> no, I love that. And, I, and a lot of what he said resonates with what I do on this podcast and, and through my own business is, is giving people that empowerment and, and showcasing different platforms. I think particularly around the world of startups, it's kind of you don't know what you don't know. 
And and, and mm-hmm. to your point earlier about when you grow up, people want to go into the tra- kind of traditional corporate roles, but then you learn about the, these new things through conversation. But if there's platforms that can educate you on that before you make the mistakes, that you kind of save a few years of going down a rabbit hole. So absolutely. And you, you touched on your point about having one month runway. And when we talked earlier about how institutional educational customers and universities can be really hard to close as, as accounts and get a sort of financial agreement in. So these products that you tried and experimented with, did you get paid for these products? Cause I think that's something people forget is that at the end of the day, you're running a business and you've got a month's <laughs> runway and during COVID everyone else was cutting their spend as well and cutting yeah. their burn and trying to conserve energy and conserve financial yeah. health how did you sort of, if you're comfortable sharing, how did you crack that and get someone to pay you when you had a month's runway left? It was, um, yeah, that was, it was a lot of, and I, you know, can say, you feel kind of safe to say it now because you're like, oh, it was ages ago. Mm. <laughs> it was, um, it was basically just being very, I'm not aggressive, but just projecting this level of confidence that like whatever you need solved, we can solve that. So we definitely went to more service mindset straight away. We started to kind of speak to all of our partners that would have previously been buying international programs or other programs and trying to understand what they were struggling with and what was being hard for them at the moment. And whatever they said, we had a solution for it. Um, And the other trick was actually figuring out where the money was. Because in in higher education... um, you know, there's pockets and there's different budgets and every department's got their own thing. And I, I certainly don't know how it all works exactly. Um, but we very quickly realised, well, okay, international travel is not happening right now, but the people that need support are student retention, student engagement, alumni retention. Like there was a lot of universities trying to keep the students that they'd already enrolled because students are dropping out as well. So we started to find the other places where there were, there were like little pockets of funds um, and position ourselves to be the solution for that, um, which, you know, I, even though it sounds a little bit uh, calculating, I guess, maybe in, in the cold light of day, at the time we really added a, we added a shitload of value. Like there were students on our programs who were just crying with relief to be speaking to anyone. There were students who had not spoken to another peer for months. Like, I mean, I know that even though we had to make calculating business decisions. We still added value and we still stayed true to our values and we helped our clients and we helped a lot of students. So I, um, I'm pretty proud of that period of time, getting through that and also um, taking care of my team, uh, making sure that they you know, were okay mentally and, and psychologically. Um, and then as, the, as we started to kind of ease up with cash flow, one of the first things I invested in was actually an employee um, assistance plan. So um, mm. some counseling sessions the team so that we could make sure we were taking care of ourselves while we were taking care of other people. Mm. Well, one of the other things that I, I was informed in my research process, and I think you might've mentioned it as well, is you Hex ran a lot of industry events to actually educate the competitors and educate the broader industry, which again, when you hear that, it sounds kind of counterproductive. It's like, why, why would you help someone else? But I've, mm. I've learned it as well. The hard way is when you work collaboratively and work in that sort of community and truly be community the good people actually generally see that and go, let's help each other. And, and mm-hmm. the ones that are secure in their own thing, I guess the question there, and again, I'm asking a very pointed questions. So I, I want to tell the audience that clearly, as you've said, there's no one, two, three step, but there's some learnings you've had. What was the kind of impetus to want to do that? Cause particularly, I, I'm not sure if this was during the COVID time or before it, but mm-hmm. 
everyone was kind of bunkering down and kind of trying to protect their own turf. Whereas mm -hmm. you said, no, let's work together. And that's actually a kind of refreshing energy to have to work together. Um, mm -hmm. What was that like? Because I think now you see a lot in 2022 about community growth models and working collaboratively and doing cross-functional events. But even a few years ago, it wasn't very common. True. And I, I think um, you just, you kind of just said the words, right? It was a refreshing energy. Um, we We knew that part of the reason I think that Hex was always successful, even from the first first few things we ever did, was because we brought a different energy into the sector. Um, we deliberately didn't know everything. We were like, yep, we're not sure how that works, but this is how we're going to do it. Um, mm. We deliberately didn't have like, uh, well, you know, we, we didn't. We didn't have like a hardcore pedagogy or any kind of like very structured kind of learning model. We were always very fluid and very adaptive and fun. Like fun was is was um, like a really core value for the business and I think when we decided to run these uh, industry events and like share what we'd learned with other educators and other study providers our mindset was well two things let's be who we are you know we're generous we're fun let's just do that and be those people uh, and bring people together because we know that being the person that brings people together lifts your credibility in the industry um but also it was like a little bit of a sneaky marketing thing. It's like, well, if we can show how good we are at doing this, then maybe like we become the industry leaders in actually, in actually doing it and people remember. Um, and if people are like, oh, well, who's doing online education well? All these guys because they're running a program about it, right? So I think um, it, was, it was definitely sort of a two-sided coin, but it was mostly driven in uh, wanting to sort of help the students and make sure that whoever they did stuff with they were better educated. Um, yeah, and we came up with this concept called the, the backwards mullet approach to online programming, <laughs> <laughs> which is like party at the front and business at the back. Mm, so make sure I that like everything, everything on screen is children's TV presenter energy and you've got to be like two, three times energy to get one times through the screen. Um, but that, you know, music and memes and whatever, whatever it took to make the, make the students laugh. Um, and then in the back end, it's like military precision of, and then you put this like pole up and then this music is cute. And then you've got this slide and like that really, you know, really specific planning. Um, but you got to do the duck swimming under, swimming under the water thing. Like you can't see that. It's got to look like a party. So. So cool. I love these names that you've had for all your products and your Aussie hangover party. <laughs> that again goes back to like kind of questioning the education, like very conservative black and white approach. So clearly it's it's working. So that's, that's a good approach. I want to I wanna talk about something we haven't touched on at all yet is external funding and working with investors. Mm -hmm. I think that's something again that... I know you're something you're passionate about from a few angles and, and, and you, you've been very candid about kind of one month runway and, and clearly at that point it sounds like you didn't have investor funding. Um, when, when was the first time you started considering investor funding? Like I spoke to Cheryl in the lead up to this and she mentioned X was her first ed tech investment and, and she really backed you as a founder. Thanks, and Cheryl. <laughs> and you hear so many investors kind of talk about how we only invest in SaaS or we only invest in certain businesses, but then other investors say we invest in the founder. And it's this kind of convoluted world where no one really tells you what they actually think. And, and I've seen that now as, a, as an angel investor. Tell me about that, that, that in the early days, like when you first said, okay, we're mm. going to start raising money. Did you have a 
target set of investors you went through or was it people in your network or was mm. it even universities because some of them have kind of corporate venture arms as well how was that process early on yeah that i mean i've got to tell you the first and most difficult thing i think for me was making the decision making a decision to raise money like we toyed with it for ages like oh yeah we should go and get some, everyone else gets money we can get money like we kind of toyed with the idea for a long time making the decision to be like no we are raising we are going to do this that was a pretty big call and I think once um once we actually said it and decided then things moved pretty quickly so I'd just say to people who are thinking about it be clear about whether you're just flirting with the idea or whether it's part of your strategy um because once we once we decided what we actually wanted to build and how big we wanted it to go it became clear that we couldn't do that with the well, we could do it. It would just take like seven years. So if we wanted to do it now, we had to get money in now. So I think um, that was that was number one. Um, in terms of who did I approach and, and how I did that, I'm going to credit the fact that I, you know, if you think back to all of the coffees and stuff that I had when I was still at ANZ and during my little break, one of them probably was with Cheryl. Like I'm mm. pretty sure we met an, in Sydney at some like-minded bitches drinking wine event um you know with the show co-founder jane lou and the, you know like she was maybe wearing like a unicorn t-shirt like i don't know but like we probably met over a glass of wine five years ago before it got to a point where um you know she's in an angel role and, and i'm in a founder role um likewise with uh you know with rachel rachel and the giant leap team um who've been amazing we've been engaging and and you know been i guess friends with Giant Leap for a long time. They've been so generous in the way that they support early stage founders and come in to speak to our students and judge our pitch days and things like that. So I think it was just about long-term relationship building, which I know not everyone has the luxury to do. Uh, I would say it was, you know, you, you kind of get told all of the the things, right? Like make the make a CRM and make your list and, you know, test your pitches on people that you don't really want and all that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> yeah, I just... Um, I think I think we just yeah we, we were pretty targeted once we once we knew who was who was going to support us, it yeah it, it happened fairly quickly I think because once it, I was in the market saying this is what we're doing, and this is how we're doing it it all kind of landed fairly quickly. You're you're one of the more established edtech players now and and. and Correct me if you don't want to be labeled as ed tech, because I know some founders go, we're not ed tech, we're everything. And and that's completely understandable. What are some of the metrics that investors look at in a educational centered business? Because I, I recently did some work with an accelerator and there was a few ed tech founders in there. And, and one of the mm-hmm. feedbacks they got were some VCs were really interested, but if they've already got a portfolio company in that space, they don't want another portfolio company that sort of mm-hmm. overlaps with some of the products because to the earlier conversation we had, a lot of the customer set is the same. You, there, there isn't that much kind of breadth of customers, particularly mm-hmm. in, in Australia. So are there any kind of metrics you've learned that are really big signals for investors in, in the space you're in that gives them confidence? I am definitely way less a metrics girl than I am a strategy girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to upfront this answer with that. Um, so, I mean, your point about, you know, VCs, maybe an investor's not wanting to cannibalize their own portfolios, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess I would then challenge, uh, challenge the founders to think about, well, if you are cannibalizing someone else's patch, like what other markets can you open? Um, does it have to be tied to a certain thing? Does it have to be in a certain educational structure and I think that's a bit of a trap in edtech because we often try to align with local um, 
you know, local qualifications and credentials that you end up getting stuck with like the HSC or the VCE system or the ATAR system or the, you know, uni system. Um, so, so I think the ability to flex and open up the global market would be a strong signal for investors looking at edtech. So you, they know that you're not just ring fenced in your geography. Um, I mean, there's a lot of obviously talk with anything to do with getting students and learners on board about the growth engines and how many people sign up and stuff. It's tricky sometimes when we have weird patterns and seasonal patterns in our business because we kind of work in semesters and mid-semester breaks and um, and that kind of thing. So uh, I think just knowing your business rhythms and being able to talk to that will put you in a much better position. Don't don't let, as in don't let yourself be dragged into oh well your month on month isn't good. It's like yes, but look at my you know quarter on quarter or my semester on semester or. You know, if you know what your rhythms are, I think that will give you more power in a conversation. Mm. I know another aspect Jeanette is passionate about is female founders and, and supporting them with sort of education building. And I saw mm-hmm. a stat the other day that I think less than 5% of VC capital in, in the last couple of years has gone to female founders. And and obviously, how, you've... Is, that st- how is that still a thing? Like, how? Mm. I don't yeah, I mean, and I think maybe the question, the first question there is what were kind of some of your learnings? through the process when you were speaking to some of these investors who maybe said no mm. to you and you don't have to name them if you don't want to but mm. what did you learn from that like did you feel it was because your business model didn't suit their interest or was it bias i think it'd be interesting because a lot of investors listen to this podcast will be interesting are there any insights from your own experience that you feel that mm. the broader audience can learn from i think as a whole um like you know you got to give credit to the industry like everyone's p- paying attention to this right so it's not a it's not an unknown issue. Um, I, I, you know, I definitely still think that there is a little bit of bias against a non-technical founder. So I wouldn't say that that's necessarily because I'm, I'm a woman, but, um, you know, my non-technical background plus being female probably was like, oh, well, is she going to build something tech? Probably not sure. So there might have been an unconscious thing there potentially with some people. Um, I would have preferred to have been judged on my ability to generate interest, attract talent, um, you know, like bring on the right people because that those skill sets are like, I don't think that no one can argue with my ability to bring on talent and attract sort of attention to that mission, right? So I think, you know, investors could con- could consider what other what other factors might um, might that founder bring if they don't tick the, the traditional boxes. Um, I definitely did find more, uh, more, you know, I was more successful with talking to women investors. Um, you know, or like women, like women angels who um, also had kind of a vested interest in seeing more female founders. So I think leaning into being mission aligned worked for me. So working with um, scale investors who work with women founders, um, you know, also with Alice Anderson Fund at LaunchVic, they're all about driving that diversity in the founding, in the founding community. So I, you know, as much as you don't want to be the token or you don't want to feel like you're taking handouts, like we still worked bloody hard for this and these things exist for a reason. So um, like lean into that if if it's there. Um, I guess the only other thing would be that there were a couple of times when I did chat to other founders who were raising at the same time and you don't want to ever think you're being discriminated against, but sometimes it was clear that the question, the line of questioning might be more what if this goes wrong versus what if this goes right. Um, and I think that that's a fairly well known and understood unconscious bias that um uh you know even in pitch days and that kind of thing 
male founders tend to get there. Well, tell me what the potential is of this or tell me what if you scale to this place versus what if everything goes wrong, which um, women tend to answer the risk aversion questions more. And if you do that, you're bringing your vision smaller and you're mm. defending your position rather than building excitement for the, the size of the opportunity. Mm. Mm. That's such an interesting point. And you see that even in job interviews, like there's so much in yeah. data points about when female applicants go for job interviews, they aren't as ambitious as male found. Like I think there was one the other day about if a male ticks six out of 10 of the criteria, they'll apply for the job. Whereas mm-hmm. a female will wait till let she ticks nine or 10 and, and very rarely does someone tick nine or take 10 of the boxes for a criteria. So yeah, really interesting, really interesting points there. I think one last question on funding before we get to a question on your team and then close the rapid fire round is how are you navigating the current environment? And and, and maybe that's a broad question, but to be specific, you're seeing a lot of things on the news and in, in even kind of mm. private conversations where valuations are being reviewed and some investors are putting a lot of pressure on some founders where some founders are being very good about it and keeping everyone updated and managing it really well without giving away any kind of confidential information about Hex and, and how you're managing it. Is there anything on top of mind? Like you talked about COVID and this is kind of feels like part two of that, like without yeah. it being a thing that affects everyone in the world, it seems to be a tech slowdown at the moment and inflation and interest rates. But is there anything you're seeing from an education perspective or from an investment point you want to share? You know, I think that this sort of slowdown or rebalancing was due. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the messages and the valuations we were seeing in the last few years were pretty were pretty intense um, and honestly could have been intimidating for people who were just coming into the space going like, what is going on here? Like people are reporting massive losses and that seems fine. Um, and so I think my personal mentality in this time is that we're back to business fundamentals. Um I was, we bootstrapped Hex from day one until the minute we raised at the start of 22. Um, And so that's four years of bootstrapping. So I'm used to running a business that's lean and that is, um, you know, that was revenue positive and profitable, actually. We were profitable for the first few years. So so being back to business fundamentals, it doesn't scare me, um, but I think it might scare people who haven't done that before. Um, what what I'm trying to do carefully is balance the, you know, balance the growth that I still want to have and, and, you know, knowing that I do need to spend some of that money to make sure we hit that growth and hire the right people um, with the, those fundamentals. So trying to sort of walk that line of like being careful but not too careful. Um, I got advice from uh, from one of my investors about don't go into cockroach mode and just hibernate and st- like store all your money and, and not like spend it. So there's definitely a balance. Um but you know, I, I won't lie. It's it's definitely a bit. It's definitely tough out there in terms of um, sales. People are making uh, different decisions. People are waiting to make decisions. Um, trying. I'm trying really hard to make sure that we are assessing and reassessing our projections all the time to make sure that we're readjusting those um, to be in line with what's actually happening. Because things that we thought were going to happen three months ago, eh, maybe didn't quite happen. Um, but I had. There's a couple of things that I'm really confident that are going to land. So I think it's just about founders making sure that they've got confidence in their projections and, and being realistic about that. I want to ask one question about your team and, and Kathy Rhodes, who I spoke to as part of the research, she was fantastic, gave me so many points. You mentioned um, Julia Tan, your assistant, your high-flying assistant, who is an absolute <laughs> champion in your team. And, and she mentioned how you support her really well and 
in her words, she's kind of mini Jeanette and, and she's also Asian background and, and how she's got really big dreams. Can, can you touch on that relationship between you and your assistant? Because that to a lot of people can be very binary. It's like, oh yeah, she's my assistant. She does my work for me. But from what Kathy tells me, mm-hmm. it's a different kind of relationship where you really want her to grow <laughs> beyond being your assistant. Well, what does that look like? <laughs> It's a, it's a fairly new relationship, actually. Like, Julia Ty's only been in the team for um, a few months, but I don't know how I ever lived without her. Uh, there's something there's something in there about, and look, I've got to be really honest here. When, you know, you hear about people going, oh, yeah, this person reminds me of me, and so I'm going to hire them and mentor them. That's how we got to where we are today with all of the unconscious bias, right? And I've just gone and done mm. the exact same thing. Um, mm. But I also, you know, I'm not going to apologize for this particular one because we need to do some rebalancing right now. Anyway, that's that's another coffee conversation. <laughs> but no, she's, she's incredible. And I think um, for founders who might be bringing on a, an EA or a PA or whatever, um, kind of always have in the back of your mind that this person could be your chief of staff, right? They, mm. they are across everything that you're across. If you can't afford a chief of staff yet or that's not the role that you need right now, like an excellent EA could be that person and play that role. Um, and I think as um, as a leader, like being, you know, understanding that that, I don't know, like that, that person is is more than what they're doing today. And I think I think of that as with my whole team, like everyone is more than what they're doing today. And it's my job as a leader to figure out what else they could be or where they want to go. Um, so, so yeah, like I think I'm always curious to hear what my team is interested in. Uh, it's important to me that I don't force them into career paths that they're not comfortable with. Um, I don't mind if they do, you know, side projects that keep them interested and creative. There's a little bit of, um, it's, I think it's a new, a new way of thinking because like it's, uh, it's, it's a bit risky. Uh, but at the same time, I think if as a leader, if you show that you care and you really, really want that person to succeed, then I suspect, well, I've my experience is that it comes back in spades. There's a lot of trust and there's a lot of um, extra culture, culture benefit there. I, I was going to say it probably goes back to your time from your manager at ANZ who supported you and you haven't forgotten that. And I think loyalty works both ways. And, and I agree with I you. Know. The managers in my time who've seen that, you kind of give it back to them. But the ones that micromanage you and say, no, you only do one job and you got to stay here, you kind of, the first chance you get, you jump ship. So <laughs> I think people mm-hmm. don't admit that, but it's but it's reality. We've got a few minutes left, so I'd love to close with a quick rapid fire round of questions. Is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life, non-financial? Sorry, you just said rapid fire, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe to maybe to your pets, you wanna do you wanna touch on that? I think that's that's really interesting. How you've got a therapy therapy dog, Pippa. What oh, yeah. what role does the dog play in, in keeping you sane? <laughs> oh, I mean, I have a I have a ginger cat called Ginger Meow, and a Springer Spaniel called Pippa. Um, and Pippa and I just got got approved to be therapy dog volunteers, which means that she gets to put on a little bandana, and we go into aged care homes or mental health hospitals or something like that. So, um, I think. The reason I did it was because everything I do is so brain-based. I needed to do something heart-based. You know, it's like let's stop with the cerebral stuff and, you know, allow ourselves to connect with people emotionally. And I think animals can can do that for people. Um, and so she's sleeping by my feet at the moment and being very adorable. But, um, yeah, she's she was definitely a good investment. Um, and probably the other, you know, probably good investment from a life perspective was going to a to Morocco for a holiday because um I met my partner there he was my tour guide <laughs> um, nice <laughs> then imported him from uh from the UK to Australia so uh, so you know I think sometimes 
doing those things outside of your comfort zone can lead to really interesting outcomes. Nice. Is, is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? Again, rapid fire, sorry. <laughs> no, I, well, yes. I mean, I, I expect that I'm going to continue to learn. I don't have a specific thing, but I think there's things I want to reconnect with. Like I think the last few years have been really, really intense um, for me, for many founders, for many investors. I think a lot of us are now starting to rebalance um, and go, okay, it's I can still do this and be high powered, high flyer, be you know, be a ambitious person, and still hang out with my dog and you know, be with my family and see my friends and read books. Like it's okay. And I think I need to re. What I'd like to learn is to give myself that permission back again to to really embrace the other parts of me that I think have been uh, unwatered for a while. <laughs> like there's this little garden where the, the, those flowers are drooping. Mm. Like the business is doing great. <laughs> I, but, um, I like yeah, that metaphor. Fertilizer yeah. on those flowers. <laughs> yeah, I like that metaphor. I, I'd love to ask so many more questions, but we've run out of time. Thank you so much, Jeanette, for joining me. This was awesome to do, and I think you're doing some really, really cool stuff. And I'm personally interested in how you're kind of changing the education system for the better. So, wish you all the best and keep in touch. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to talk to you. I hope you took away some actual insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your life and continue to be 1% better. If you're enjoying the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can either share a rating or review on your podcast app or contact me directly via email or any of their social media pages. All links are in the show notes. Talk soon.